Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. So I've talked about trees before in my apartment complex and last Friday I was sleeping or about to go to sleep and my whole apartment shook and I live kind of by a semi loading dock so I had thought that honestly a semi had ran into my apartment (laughs) and then it was quiet so I was like okay whatever I'm not hearing anything and then I started to hear like police radio chatter outside of my apartment so I went outside and there was a police officer talking to my neighbor And after she was done talking to him, I was like, hey, is everything okay? And she was like, oh yeah, a part of a tree fell. And when I say part of a tree, we have this probably 200 foot tree that is in the middle of our apartment complex and a huge portion of the tree fell onto two apartments and blew out somebody's wall. And her apartment was next to that apartment and a bunch of stuff fell on her roof. So she had to be moved apartments because she was worried that structurally her apartment wasn't going to be sound, which of course I think most people would be. But luckily no one was hurt. But I thought I had experienced my first earthquake, and alas, that was not the case. And with that introduction, welcome to Scandal 101. (laughs) Um, You've probably seen, like, my Scandal update for this week is the awful, awful, horrible happenings that happened at Astroworld. And just in case you're not familiar, it is uh, a music festival organized by Travis Scott, and I think Live Nation is the event host planner whoever who actually put it on but during his set there was this huge like mosh pit crowd thing that surged towards the stage and eight people died and there were many many people injured and it was because the crowd was crazy and out of control and like they were just shoving each other and that's not I mean you know it's awful that the crowd that that was happening in the crowd but shortly after this happened videos started coming out of where people were trying to get the attention of the cameramen, people were trying to get attention of like event organizers, security. The crowd was at one point shouting to Travis Scott while he wasn't singing that like there's someone dead in the audience. And from at least at this point, it seems like he was aware that something was going on, but didn't stop a show and continued with the show, which only seemed to make things worse. And it resulted in, like I said, eight people dying and many people injured. And now already, I'm recording this on Monday, November 8th, there's already one lawsuit against Travis Scott Live Nation and other organizers of the of the event, basically being like, hey, you all didn't run this right and people died and people were injured. So I'll be really interested to see how that comes out over the next couple of days and weeks. And I've also heard rumors and these are just rumors that uh, Travis Scott is going back and like or someone whoever runs his Twitter is going back and deleting old tweets because there were many cited uh, examples of him tweeting and encouraging his fans to like ignore security, break through the barriers, all of those things. And now that (laughs) that people did that and now people are dead. So I'll be really, really interested to see what happens with that. Yeah, okay, so that is I mean, there's a lot there's always scandals going on in the world. But that is the biggest scandal that I've seen in the news recently. 
Um, so I'll be really, really interested to see what happens with that. But regardless of what happens, it's so unfortunate that as music events are coming back after the COVID-19 pandemic that something like this would happen. So hopefully there is a positive resolution to this <laughs> to this thing. I don't know what that would look like, but hopefully there is some accountability um, handed out, whether that be to Travis Scott or Live Nation or whoever else was managing the event. But there needs to definitely, in my opinion, be some accountability handed out. Okay, so this case is definitely going to be like, I don't know if tense is the right word, but if you were alive during this time or after this time, like around the time you definitely probably remember hearing about it, you saw what the title of this is, but this is the case of the subway, the subway, good God, I can't talk, the subway vigilante Bernie Getz. And then before I start, this does have to do with the shooting of people, and there are some talks about race involved with it, so just so you know that going in. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to start with is part of Bernie Getz's confession, some background about New York City, and then background on Bernie himself. This is part of a quote from Bernie Getz's long-recorded confession. Quote, I wanted to kill those guys. I wanted to maim those guys. I wanted to make them suffer in every way I could. If I had more bullets, I would have shot them all again and again. My problem was I ran out of bullets. I was going to gouge one of those guys' eyes out with my keys afterwards. You, you can't understand this. I know you can't understand this. That's fine. The only reason I didn't do it is because he changed his look. He changed his look. You wouldn't understand. End quote. So that is part of a small, a small part of Bernie Getz's taped confession. Just, just keep that in mind going into this whole thing. I'm going to give you some context about when and where we're talking about so you can fully understand the picture and all that's going on with this whole thing. The date of this happening is December 22nd, 1984. It's the holiday season. People are probably out shopping, getting their last gifts figured out, maybe getting ready to travel some places. And where this is all taking place in 1984 is New York City. I went to New York City in 2018 right before Christmas and it was super lovely. Everything was lit up. It was decorated. I went with one of my friends and my friend and I would head out early in the morning like 7 or 8 and we would be out for long, long days like 14, 16, 18 hour days to take in as much as we could while we were there. And how we would always get back to where we were staying is we would take the subway. And I think two out of the four nights we were there, we took the subway back to where we were staying or like the area at like 1 a.m. And it was fine. It was pretty empty for the most part. We didn't really feel unsafe. I mean, we weren't oblivious like we did. Obviously, we were aware of our surroundings, but we never had the feeling of that we were in danger at any time. Like there were a couple of other people on there, but they were minding their own business. It was fine. So that, I mean, at least of 2018, that was my experience on the subway in New York City. That is not the case for this story. Back in the 1980s, New York City was a completely different place than it is now. One of the main articles I use for this, this my research for this episode, is an insider article by Sal Bono, and he described New York City in the mid-1980s as, quote, dirty, dangerous, and dilapidated, end quote. Quote, when you rode the subway in the 1980s, you kept your eyes open. You didn't bury yourself in a book. 
end quote. And when looking at pictures of the subway in the 1980s, which I'll post on social media, the cars were covered on the inside with graffiti. We talked about this case a little bit in my criminal law class, and in the 1980s, there were over 250 violent felonies per week in the subway system alone. And those numbers made it the most dangerous public transit system in the world. Quote, it was very intimidating just to walk on to one of those trains, and it was walking down the street at night, and it was a scary thing to do, and so I would say the general populace was gripped with fear, end quote. So that's the context we're talking about. 250 violent felonies per week in the subway system in New York, uh, just in the subway system, not the city as a whole. People were gripped with fear. There was graffiti all over the subway system, and I mean, not saying the New York subway system is like spotless or super duper clean in any means in today's standards, but looking at it now from the 1980s, there is a remarkable difference, and I'm going to post some pictures so you can see that. Okay, so now you have the context of where we're at, 1980s New York City, you know a little bit about the subway system, let's talk a little bit about Bernie Getz. Bernie was a 37-year-old at the time, and he lived in a rent-controlled apartment in the Union Square, and this information is still coming from that Insider article. Quote, he was well-educated and owned and operated a small business where he specialized in calibrating electronics, end quote. Later on, his attorney would call him, quote, an average geek, end quote. And I'll post a picture of him as well, but the way I would describe him, just so you can get a picture of him, is your average 80s nerdy-looking white guy. He was slim, he kind of had a little bit of a receding hairline, he had big rimmed glasses, you know, the works of a classic 1980s quote-unquote geek. Oh, okay, here's a comparison. He kind of looks maybe a little bit like um, Back to the Future Marty McFly's dad when he was in high school. Like that's like, yeah, just, you know, like the nerdy kid who's like a little skinny. I don't know what his, his voice when you listen to the taped recording sounds a little nasally in my opinion. So that's who, that's who you're picturing when you think of this. According to Getz, so Bernie Getz, the main guy, he had been jumped on the subway back in 1981 by three black teenagers who beat him up pretty badly and stole his electrical equipment that he had with him at the time. Attorney Ron Kuby said that Goats reported to the New York Police Department that he reported the incident to the police department, but, quote, the cops didn't treat that as seriously as he felt that it should be treated, end quote. So that's when Bernie, Bernie Getz decided that he was going to carry around a gun with him. Also, I just realized, I don't know if I said goats or gets, but it's gets. And I'm going to say Bernie from now on so I, don't, so I don't make that mistake. But Bernie, he had apparently applied for a pistol permit shortly after his mugging. And, he's, and with that permit, he says that, quote, he needed it because he carried large amounts of cash as well as valuable equipment with him to and from his office, end quote. But... That permit application was denied. He then bought a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson, and it was never licensed. Attorney Ron Kuby said that, quote, he kept that gun with him. He even said that he would never wear gloves in the winter because they might interfere with quick access to his gun, end quote. Bernie also said in his confession that between 1981, after buying the gun, and 1984, the day of this incident, there had been multiple mugging attempts on him. So after that 1981 attack, there had been multiple attempts 
for like on him to be mugged again. And the way he handled those situations was he would show his potential mugger the gun and simply showing the mugger the gun was enough for the mugger to be like, okay, nope, not messing with this. And it avoided any confrontation. So before this incident, just simply showing the gun, not firing it, not shooting, just showing the gun was enough. Going to the day of this of this event, so December 22nd, 1984, it was just around 2 p.m. when Bernie headed down to the subway, heading from downtown to Union Square. On the car near him were four teenagers from the Bronx. According to the court case People v. Getz, the boys were the boys in the car were Troy Canty, Daryl Cabby, James Ramser, and Barry Allen. And I'm gonna call them by their first names from now on. Also, for context, these boys are four black boys, and the talks about race are going to come up later in the episode, but just so you're aware, Bernie Guts is a white guy, these four teenagers are four black boys, and like I said, that race conversation is going to come up later. Two of the boys, James and Daryl, had screwdrivers in their coat pockets. What was the purpose of having these screwdrivers? From both the court case and an interview with one of their brothers, the purpose of the screwdrivers was to break into coin boxes of video game machines to like steal the quarters and the money that was in there. And from every account that I read, there was no indication that these screwdrivers were going to be used for violence. And then also please remember that these screwdrivers are in the coat pocket, so they are not visible to anyone just looking at them. According to Bernie's statement, the first interaction that Bernie had with one of the one of the boys was with Troy, who was sitting across from him, and one of them just asked, "How are you?" And then Bernie responded with, "Fine." So normal everyday conversation. Shortly after that, Troy and one of the other boys, possibly Barry, the there are different accounts, but it was most likely Barry, approached Bernie. The two other boys, so not Troy and not Barry, they were just kind of standing off in the corner when all this was happening. And then again, I just want to remind you that the screwdrivers are in their pockets and there are no other weapons present. Troy then says to Bernie, quote, give me five dollars, end quote. No weapons were shown and that was what was said. The quote, give me five dollars, that was what was said from Troy to Bernie. Coming from the court case, quote, Bernie stated that he knew from the smile on Troy's face that he wanted to play with me. Although he was certain that none of the youths had a gun, again let me say that, Bernie was certain that none of the youths had a gun, he had a fear based on prior experiences of being maimed, end quote. So Bernie was certain that None of those boys had a gun, but again, keeping in mind Bernie's past experiences of being bu- of being uh, mugged and the reality of what it was like to be on the New York subway system at the time, over 250 violent felonies per week, we can't forget that context as well as the context of what is happening in this event. In past mugging experiences, all Bernie had to do was show the gun and that kind of stopped the whole thing from happening. This time, things were going to be different. This next quote is coming from the court case. Quote, Bernie then established a pattern of fire, deciding specifically to fire from left to right. His stated intention at that point was to murder the four youths, to hurt them, to make them suffer as much as possible. End quote. 
This was done before the shooting. So he had decided, I want to murder the four youths. I want to hurt them. I want to make them suffer as much as possible before the shooting. Then, quote, when Troy again requested money, so he said, give me $5 again, Bernie stood up, drew his weapon, and began firing, aiming for the center of the body of each of the four. Bernie recalled that the first two he shot tried to run through the crowd, but they had nowhere to run. Bernie then turned to his right to go after the other two. One of these two tried to run through the wall of the train, but he had nowhere to go. The other boy, Daryl, he tried pretending that he wasn't with the others by standing still by holding on to one of the subway straps and not looking at Bernie. Bernie nonetheless fired his fourth shot at him. He then ran, Bernie then ran back to the first two to make sure they had been, quote, taken care of. Seeing that they had been shot, he then spun back around to check on the latter two. Bernie noticed that the youth who had been standing still was now on a bench and seemed unhurt. And then as, as Bernie told the police, Bernie said to the boy, quote, you seem to be all right. Here's another. And then he fired the shot, which severed Daryl's spinal cord. Bernie then added that, quote, If I had a little more self-control, I would have put the barrel against his forehead and fired, end quote. He also admitted that, quote, If I had more bullets, I would have shot them again and again and again, end quote. So, of course, panic ensues on this train because someone's firing a gun on the subway. The conductor stopped the train after hearing the gunshots and the police were called. Bernie said, Bernie uh, told the conductor that the four boys had tried to rob him. While the train was stopped and while the conductor was trying to give assistance to the boys, Bernie jumped off the train and fled. He became known as the subway vigilante, and this story spread fast, and it divided New York. News footage from ABC7 Eyewitness News at the time provided some insight as to what people were thinking, and there's a clip on YouTube, which I will, I mean, it's in the show notes, you can watch it. Here are some of, here are some things that people said in that news footage. One conductor, and I don't know if it was the conductor of that train, but a conductor for the subway system who was a black man said that Bernie thought... Uh, he thought Bernie was in the right. Quote, I think he did right. They tried to mug him. End quote. A white man who identified himself as a law student said, quote, I think it was completely wrong. End quote. A black woman said, quote, I think, you know, he was protecting himself. This is around the Christmas holiday and you got to look out for yourself. End quote. An older white man said, quote, I think he was justified. I mean, it was four against one. End quote. Finally, another black man said, quote, him taking a vigilante type response to crime in the city leads others to feel like they can do it too. It can be harmful to all of us, end quote. And of course, while this is not a statistical sample or anything that would be representative of an actual study, it does give some insight as to what people were thinking at the time. Bernie was on the run for nine days until December 31st. He then surrendered himself to police in Concord, New Hampshire. He then made long, long statements, which were recorded, and you can find them online, and the link to them is in the show notes if you do want to watch them, but also if you just search Bernie Gets confession tapes, they pop up. After this, 
uh, Bernie was extradited back from, or from New Hampshire back to New York, and he was indicted by a grand jury. The first grand jury indicted him only on gun charges and nothing for attempted murder. New evidence was gathered, and it was presented to a second grand jury, which indicted him on, quote, four counts of attempted murder, four charges of assault in the first degree, one charge of reckless endangerment in the first degree, and one charge of criminal possession of a weapon in the second degree, end quote. Bernie then moved to have the charges dismissed because there was not legally sufficient evidence and the prosecutor's instruction to the second grand jury on the defense of justification was erroneous, and eventually the charges were dropped. So basically what happened is the prosecutor was asked a question by the juror, and the juror asked the prosecutor what the term reasonably believes means, and the prosecutor responded, quote, whether the defendant's conduct were that of a reasonable man in the defendant's situation, end quote. This showed the jury that they should look at Bernie Getz's actions through a reasonable person's standard, but Bernie thought that the standard should be subjective, not objective. Bernie thought that it should be focused on if his beliefs at the time were reasonable for the circumstances, not that of a reasonable person. Like I said, the charges were dismissed because the court sided with Bernie's interpretation, but then the charges were reinstated by the New York Court of Appeals, which is New York's Supreme Court, and the standard that emerged from the Supreme Court of New York is that it should be a subjective plus objective standard. And even though this may sound like legal, like boring legal talk, it really is important because the first thing that the court considers is, did the defendant subjectively believe deadly force was necessary to avert the imminent use of deadly force? So basically, did the defendant, did the defendant believe that deadly force was necessary? Then second, the court looks at, was the defendant's belief reasonable in light of all of the circumstances would a reasonable person have had the same subjective belief as the defendant? So, if someone else was in Bernie Getz's shoes, would it have been a reasonable belief to come to that conclusion that deadly force was necessary? And some of the things that the jury can consider are the physical movements of the potential assailant, the relevant knowledge the defendant has about the potential assailant, the physical attributes of everyone involved, and the defendant's prior experiences. And here's where part of these problems come up. If you are taking into account the physical attributes of everyone involved, good God, the physical attributes of everyone involved, that can include race. So if you have a white person taking in the physical characteristics of, let's say in this case, four black boys coming up to them, is it fair that the court will consider the physical attributes of everyone involved in the situation to determine if deadly force was necessary? So when this did eventually go to trial, so this went to trial and all of those charges were on the table, the attempted first degree murder, the weapons charge, the assault charges, all of that was on the table. Here's the result of the case. Bernie was acquitted of all charges relating to attempted murder. He was convicted of criminal possession of a weapon in the third degree, which was carrying a loaded, unlicensed weapon in public. And the Wikipedia article on this shooting breaks down the jury who decided this case. The trial took place in Manhattan before a jury of 10 white people, 
two black people and six of those people uh, of the entire jury had been victims of street crime. His sentence for the weapons charge was one year in jail, but he served eight months. And then he was out. So of all of those charges, he only got sentenced of the weapons charge, and he got sentenced, he only served eight months in prison. Okay, so let's talk about the boys who were shot. Troy, James, Daryl, and Barry. Gina Tron writes for Oxygen about how, after the shootings, the boys were vilified by some in the public. While the boys did have past arrest records, they were primarily for minor offenses, and this case also took place in the midst of the crack cocaine epidemic, which, as we know now, disproportionately affected the Black and African American community. So when you look at the beliefs of the time, you have these four Black boys who, according to some, went to attack Bernie. You have the racial... Um, beliefs of the 1980s. You have this crack cocaine pandemic, which, or epidemic, whatever they called it, which disproportionately impacted Black and African American communities. But then on the flip side, you have this context of the New York subway, where 250 violent felonies per week in the subway happened, and Bernie Guts was a victim of, of a past assault violent felony on the subway system. A UPI article from 1987 did a follow-up with each of the boys, so that was about three years after the shooting. James was shot in the arm and chest by Bernie, and when the article was published in 1987, um, James was sentenced to prison for 8 to 25 years after raping, sodomizing, and robbing an 18-year-old in the Bronx. Barry, one of the other boys, he was shot in the back by uh, Bernie. At the time of the article's publishing in 1987, he was serving one to four years for violating probation following a sentence of stealing a gold chain. Troy, who was shot by Bernie, was left in a drug rehabilitation center. And that's, I mean, at that in that article, that was really all it said about Troy. And then Daryl, he was the most injured. He was left paralyzed from the waist down and had, suff and had suffered some brain damage. He was hospitalized for a year after the shooting, and then he went on to live at home with his mother at the time of the publishing of the article, which was 1987. So that just provides a little bit of context shortly after the shootings, like two to three years after the Bernie Getz shootings, about how where those boys were at at that point in their lives. In 1996, a civil case was brought against Bernie on behalf of Daryl, who was the shooting victim who was paralyzed. From the Wikipedia article, the jury of that civil trial awarded Daryl $43 million, $18 million for pain and suffering, and $25 million for punitive damages. In 2004, when, when asked in an interview if Bernie was making payments on that sentence or that, uh, amount awarded to Daryl, Bernie said, quote, I don't think I've paid a penny on that, end quote. A New York Times article by Bruce Weber um, stated that James, who again was one of the shooting victims, unfortunately died at age 45 of a drug overdose in 2011. Going back to uh, Bono's article, The Insider Edition, Bernie did not fade away from the public eye after the shooting. Among other things, he ran for mayor of New York City in 2005, which he did lose, and he did have a run-in with the law in 2013 for selling marijuana to an undercover cop, but the charges were dropped a year later. 
So a little bit more on the race issue about this topic. Go, uh, Bernie was a white man and the four boys were black. We've established that. And for many people of color at the time, they felt like the verdict of the first trial only, get it, only getting sentenced with the weapons charged really proved to them what the American criminal justice system and like how, it, how the American criminal justice system handled race. Quote, I think the value of black life is not that high in American society, end quote. Bernie said that the shootings were not racially motivated, but some found that pretty hard to believe when things from Bernie's past came out, including, quote, an incident at a 1980 community meeting where he used racist slurs while complaining about Latinos and black citizens, end quote. So only four years before this shooting, he was openly using racial slurs at a community meeting when talking about black and Latino citizens. Bernie's attorneys said that, quote, I don't think if these kids were black, brown, yellow, purple, he would have acted differently. He believed, and the jury accepted that belief, that he was about to be beaten up, end quote. Jemaine Williams, a New York City public advocate, said, quote, but the question is, if it was four white men, would it have been the same result given even the same circumstances, end quote? And then in 2004, Bernie said to Larry Queen, Larry, <laughs> Larry Queen, Bernie said to Larry King, quote, I don't regret pulling the trigger. I guess feeling guilty is not one of my strong points, end quote. And that concludes the subway vigilante Bernie gets. We talked a little bit about race in there, and we, I want to touch a little more on that aspect it's an important question to ask, how does race factor into this? Because the reality of the United States is even if, even if people are not openly racist or openly uh, hateful towards certain groups, even, even not even race, if you could do sex, uh, homophobia, there are always going to be racial biases that everyone holds and that's just a reality it's some people don't like to admit it and it's not a bad thing to admit that you have a racial bias the the how you handle that racial bias how you move forward with that racial bias how you live your daily life in recognition that you have that daily have that racial bias is what's important so just from a very realistic standpoint race cannot be taken out of this because even if Bernie was not someone who was racially motivated by this shooting, he is still a human being. And as human beings, we all have racial biases. So how did race play into this? Looking more in specifically at this case, Bernie Getz was openly using racial slurs four years before this shooting at a community meeting for Black and Latino citizens. So... If it had been four women that had gone up to him, if it had been four white men, if it had been four Latino men, four Latino women, if it had been any, I mean, you can come up with all the hypotheticals you want in the world, would this result have been different? And then following up with that point, is it fair that if the result would have been different with a different group of people, is it fair that he only got charged with the weapons charge? If it had been four white men and there had been no shooting, then yeah, that definitely would have been fair to only get 
charge with the weapons charge because there was no shooting. But the fact that there was a shooting and the fact that it was for black boys, is it fair that he only got charged with the shooting because possibly there was a racial motivation behind the shooting, even if not at the forefront of his mind, he had that racial bias? Is it fair that he only had to serve eight months in prison for the weapons charge when he openly said before the shooting, like he said in his mind, he was thinking he wanted to murder those boys. He wanted to shoot those boys. He wanted to cause them damage. The only reason he stopped is because he ran out of bullets. And if he had more self-control, he would have put the gun to their forehead and shot. Is that fair? Is that fair to say that that shooting was in self-defense when he had the motivation to murder them before the shooting? In my opinion, I don't think so. I don't know what the appropriate charge would have been. It seems like it was willful, premeditated, and deliberate, which is which is the standard for first degree murder because he had that intention to murder them before shooting. And even though he didn't successfully kill any of them, luckily they all did survive. It seems like he did have that motivation. Okay, so <laughs> on that positive note, <laughs> Jesus, this case is so upsetting. That concludes Bernie Getz, the subway vigilante. That is that. It's a really, really interesting case. I would highly recommend you go watch his confession tapes. And I think the whole thing is like over an hour. So there are videos where kind of it just highlights the most upsetting or controversial things he says in those videos. But there are videos that like pull clips from it. For the personal scandal, I asked uh, what family scandal do you want to learn about from your relatives this holiday season? And someone responded with my ex-aunt. She was married to my mom's brother and then divorced when I was about seven, had a baby by another man while engaged to my uncle. Story goes that her and my uncle split up. She started dating another man. She broke up, or they broke up, and then her and my uncle got back together. Shortly afterwards, she discovered that she was pregnant with the ex-boyfriend's baby. She had the baby and placed her for adoption and then went on to marry my uncle. It wasn't a huge secret, but I didn't find out about it until recently. This also would have been in the early 70s when it was still very, very taboo. Found this story out from another aunt and didn't really know the entire story, but I'd love to hear all about it. Yes, definitely. I mean, not like the most scandalous thing to happen, but it's still like a little family secret. And it's all especially in the 70s, that definitely would have been taboo. Um, I would be super interested if when you're with your families this holiday season, whether it's any of the holidays that happen throughout November or December, uh, you should definitely ask for some family tea, some family drama, some family scandals, or some like dark secrets from your family because those are always fun to learn and I would love to hear about them. And then the last thing I want to say is with this scandal, like all of my other episodes, this is not a full in-depth comprehensive report. I did try to give multiple sides of the perspectives to show what people were thinking at the time and how it was so debated and so heated. But there's, as always, there's tons of information out there. I'm not claiming this to be a comprehensive report. If you want to find more, please do your own research. But this is definitely a good starting point for you to understand what happened. And on that note, thank you very much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest, follow us on different social medias on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, on Facebook, Scandal101Podcast, 
The website is scandal101podcast.podbean.com, and that is where you can find the show notes where I have all of my sources. And then if you have your own scandal or a scandal recommendation you want me to cover, please send it to scandal101podcast at gmail.com. Alrighty, thank you so much for listening. I will... I always want to say I'll see you next Friday, but that's not the case. I will put out a new episode next Friday. This has been episode 26 of Scandal 101.